It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. It's Saturday, and that means it's another edition of the Weekend Watchdogs here on this June the 6th. Subbing in for my regular co-host, Joe Bono, is our buddy, Jim Mojo Morrison. How you doing, Mojo? What's going on? I'm doing great, Mike. It's uh, good to be back uh, talking with you, co-hosting with you. We did this a while back uh, when Joe was away uh, the last time. And uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, we, we actually saw each other not a, uh, a few days ago when I was in New York the past week uh, doing some uh, business and some family stuff. And now here we are uh, with many, many states between us co-hosting a Saturday morning radio show. But uh, it's great to be back uh, co-hosting with you. And, uh, and I'm having a, a blast already the beauty the beauty of technology whether it's brooklyn heights for joe or uh north carolina for you we can do radio of course if you want to send us a tweet mojo's twitter is at jim mojo morrison you know mine at mike silva media the number to call in is 646-716-8187 we'll take calls at some specific times if you want uh we got a couple of really good guests today it will be more baseball centric at times but Former big league pitcher, you guys know him. He did Yankee games for a while. A pretty good fielding pitcher, by the way. Jim Cott will join us in a little bit. Get a little State of the Union on the Mets and the Yankees. Some of the things that are going on around the league. Um, I even looked that up, and Cott is actually a pretty good golfer. And I think that he's uh, going to rush us off the air a little bit. I think he wants to hit the links. I don't know where it is and how the weather is up by him. Uh, I think he's out in the New England area, but. He's, uh, up, I'm he's sure up he doesn't in want to Vermont. Spend... He's like in semi-retirement. Uh, does yep. the games on the MLB Network. You know, he has his slate that he does, and then he spends the rest of his time up there. Uh, you know, you look at Jim Kotmike, and you look at his career, the 283 probably falls a little bit short of Hall of Fame, you know, in the 25 years. 16-time uh, Gold Glove winner, three-time All-Star. But then you look at his 22 years plus as a broadcaster. I think he's won about seven so his contribution to baseball has been basically a half a century long. You kind of think that maybe there's kind of a place to put him in the Hall of Fame. You know, not exactly as a player, not exactly as a broadcaster, but overall, you know, because the man just knows the game of baseball and he's a great ambassador for the game. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, so Jim Cott will be joining us. Also, obviously, if you want to listen to the show live or, or on replay, you can go to WeekendWatchdog.com, go to the Weekend Watchdog Facebook page, so we'll get that out there. We also have a feature in the second hour of the show, Jeff Katz, who's the mayor of Cooperstown. And maybe, Mojo, he'll give you some free tickets to the Hall of Fame. Maybe he can get you a room during Hall of Fame weekend. I'm, I'm sure that's going to be nearly impossible. Maybe he'll let you stay at his uh, humble abode. But in all seriousness, he came out with a book recently, just a couple of weeks ago, called Split season 1981, which chronicles the baseball strike in 1981, and it's a new book, maybe not so much topical about what's going on in baseball now because there's been so much labor labor peace. But for the most part, I thought it was an interesting little topic, and he'll join us later on in the second hour. Of course, we'll talk NBA Finals. We'll get into the Triple Crown. Uh, there's all these festivities out in Belmont. Ninety thousand individuals making a pilgrimage to. Well, that's really natural. What do you think about that, Mike? Them capping it at ninety thousand this year. What are your thoughts on that? Sixty thousand. I would. I mean, do you not? I mean, look, Mojo. 
I've never been to Belmont. I've had family members that have gone to Belmont in the past, but this is a triple crown Belmont. And I've been to Belmont where it's just like a regular race. So I know getting in, getting out. I mean, on a regular race day, you could just basically valet your car, walk in, walk out, no big deal. Here, you're going to have to park in these auxiliary lots. I don't know how easy it'll be to find your car. You got to get to the Belmont. I know they're doing some, I guess there's going to be some kind of concert after for the Goo Goo Dolls. 90,000 people is a ton of people in one place. What is uh, MetLife? About 70,000? And think about how hard yeah, it is to get out of that place. I mean, that's a lot. That's a long day. To me, it might be a fun day. You could have pictures taken. You could wear your bonnet. Maybe my, uh, my co-host is out there drinking some apple martinis. I don't know. And that might be fun. But I think once the race is over and you want to make the, your way back home, that's got to be annoying. I mean, it's just it, a it's lot crazy. of work. Yeah, I went out 87 in, for Ali Sheba. I was there Sunday, 89. I think I went five times. Silver Charm, Real Quiet, and then Charismatic. Uh, and then Worm, so six. I think the last time I was out there for the Triple Crown, uh, as far as you know, going out trying to enjoy it. And it is trying to get out of there, Mike, just almost impossible once that race is over. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a two, three-hour process to try to leave an event uh, because there's just so many people there and you know Long Island and trying to get out to the uh, Cross Island and the Parkways and LIE and uh, I mean, it, you, could it's take, just... you could take the train there. You could if you're from Eastern Long Island like I am, you could take the train there. I believe you got to go to Jamaica on the way in. You got to switch over, go back east. I think that's the way. And then going back, you got to go to Ronkonkoma. So you're taking a couple of different lines, perhaps. It's, it's a pain in the neck. And here's my thing. And I think it was Brian Monzo, Mike Francis's producer, that even tweeted at my esteemed co-host this week. When he said, are you going to be there on Saturday? He's like, no, we're going there Friday for the show. I'd rather watch it on TV, be at home. And look, Joe and I have talked about this, Mojo. I'm sure it's been, it'd be cool to be there today. And I had an opportunity. Joe wanted me to come to the event. I just I have personal things going on that I can't. But it's just after a long week, whether you're you know, in media or if you just do media like I do, uh, you know, freelance, part-time, and then you have a regular job, after you've been doing the grind Monday to Friday – the last thing you want to do on Saturday is deal with a commute, deal with 90,000 people, deal with that stress, even though you'll probably have a good, fun three, four hours, and maybe you make a little bit of money. It just it's, For me, it's like a hassle. It goes back to, would you rather watch something on TV or would you rather be there? And I think there's a value to being at the event, but you still get to, this day and age with technology, with surround sound, with everything that you can do and see at home, you still get the experience. Maybe it's different. But for me, you know, I, I could I could deal without the ninety thousand people for a day. It's one of those deals where you've got to really be vested in it, and it all depends on what you want to do. If you're just there to try to make money with the online accounts, the television, uh, you, you don't need to go to the track uh, to you know, to make the money. I mean, most yeah. of the people that are there, they want to be part of the history. Uh, this is the 14th time uh, since 78 when affirmed one, uh, 37 years. It's amazing that they had that three uh, horses in the 70s, uh, you know, Seattle Sioux Secretariat and affirmed, and then nothing since 78. Uh, 14 horses have, have tried, or this will be the 14th horse. Uh, uh, and it's just amazing how hard and how difficult. You realize, Mike, in the history of racing, only 20 horses 
in the history of racing have actually won the Derby Preakness and come to New York, and only 11 uh, times have they been successful. Uh, you know, as far as 20 horses have had the opportunity, it, it's just very uh, difficult to do. It's one of those deals with the mile and a half. Uh, it's it's just a different race. Uh, only certain jockeys are, are capable of navigating their horse uh, throughout the course of that. Uh, it's it's one of those deals where if, if it happens and you can say you were there, uh, so be it. But you know, a lot of people go out there like I did you know, six different times, and you walk out of there and say, "What did I do to myself?" I, you know, I wound up having a, an entire day, but it was fun. I mean, overall, it's it, it's an enjoyable time uh, being at the track. But as as you said, as you get older and things progress in your life, uh, sometimes watching it on the high definition TV and using the internet is just as uh, efficient and sufficient uh, to satisfy your needs. Well, absolutely, and uh, look. The amazing part about this, I always find about any horse race, is that there's a build-up, there's a build-up, there's a build-up, and you see all the owners and, and their you know big boxes and their you know their, their reactions. And look, it's a mile and a half race, so it's not as short as uh, any of the other races on this. Not like the Kentucky Derby or anything like that. But once it's over, it's like it's so much like that shock out. It's almost what I said to to Joe about the NHL playoffs, where people love it because if you're in overtime and you're in an elimination game, you go from one to the other, you know, stress, euphoria maybe, and then boom, you're out. At least in baseball, there is walk-offs, but you almost could prepare a little bit for it because even the home run, not every home run is a no-doubter. It might be like just over the fence type of deal. Uh, The NBA, there might be a timeout for you to process this stuff. Not every NBA game is ended on a – very few, I think, are are, – I don't know what the stats are – are ended on a buzzer beater. In the NHL, it's like, boom, you're done. I think with the horse racing, it's almost like that because you're going through the whole thing. Unless the horse, you know, God forbid, gets hurt at the early part or is totally out of it, you know, you're probably going to see American Pharaoh in the top three, right? Wouldn't you expect them if, they don't, if, if the horse doesn't win the Triple Crown to be there in the end? Maybe not a photo finish, but there's really no time to, to process it. I think that's the interesting part about the whole race. Yeah, I think you'll see Farrell, and we'll talk to it, uh, about this uh, later on in, uh, in, in the show. We'll break it down a little bit for people, give a, uh, a prediction. Uh, I, I, I look Mojo at it. will. Yeah. I have, don't bet anything on Yeah, I think American Farrell will be there, you know, in the top three. Uh, it, depending on the, on the conditions of the track later on in the day, I, uh, you, you know, will be able to tell uh, what kind of run uh, American Farrell is going to have. But, yeah, it should be a great uh, run. You know, it's, it's weird, Mike. It's like Saturday – it's a week since the post-mortem Rangers. You know, a week ago last night they lost uh, in Game Seven, and I, I was speaking to a friend of mine off air right before uh, we came on, and I was saying it's, it seems like so long ago already that the Rangers were in the playoffs, and yet it's been only a week. They've only played the one game uh, of the finals where the Blackhawks have the lead, Game Two tonight. But it, it's just amazing, like what you said with the NHL playoffs. It's so long. But then what happens is I think what a lot of teams, once their team goes out, it just seems like, you know, oh, wow, it's over, and, and, and you know, you move on to the next thing, uh, whether it be baseball or football or horse racing. I think that's what makes New York so great. There's just so many sports uh, to, to uh, latch on to uh, throughout the course of the year. When you look at the sports landscape here, it's still a little too early to talk NFL. We're over a month away from training camp starting. 
NHL is in our rearview mirror. Unless you're an NHL junkie, you're not going to get into the playoffs. Now, maybe this Glenn Sather news where he's thinking of stepping down, that may give us some something to talk about New York Rangers-wise. Uh, the Knicks have been out of it. Yeah, they'll make they'll be that NBA period, that week to 10 days plus the draft, where I think we're going to have a lot of Knicks talk. But right now I think it's about the Mets and the Yankees getting us to the NFL when you talk about the, uh, the the sports talk perspective. And will they be able to be relevant and give us something to talk about where we're not trying to break down Geno Smith the second week of August? Because if you're doing that, and unfortunately I think we've been doing a little bit of that the last couple of years, then you know you don't have much. Now the Yankees have teased a little bit, and they've been in these pseudo wild card races, but I, you know, I've been the one on the record. They, they, they never really were in it. You never felt there was a race, but all right, they're there. So you're talking a little NFL, a lot of NFL, and then once September came, you were, you were basically all into the NFL season. It's been a while since we've been able to say, okay, NFL, yes, you're important. Yes, it's week one. Yes, it's week two. But here in New York, we have a pennant race, or we have pennant races, 2008. And if you look at both of these teams, and we'll get Jim Cott on in a little bit to talk about it, it's interesting because neither fan base, I believe, if you really just put them in a vacuum and said, you know, is your team a contender? Neither one would feel that way. But then you wake up, the Mets are a half a game out of first. They were in first place last night. They fell out after a loss. The Yankees are in first place. The league is really jumbled up. And this is the fact of the matter is because of, uh, you know, now that the payroll disparity has been, you know, lessened, you're not going to get teams just at the top heavy running away while everybody else plays Washington Generals to them. So other than maybe the Cardinals, and if you want to even argue the Dodgers, and in the American League, yeah, you've got Houston, who who knows how long that's going to last, that has like kind of separated themselves from the pack a little bit. Everybody's jumbled up, and it used to be, Mojo, that you would need you can't mess around more than 50 games into the season. You better After 50 games, you better start getting serious. Now you could kind of mess around until the All-Star break, maybe even July 31st, which makes it hard to upgrade your team. Um, so it may be very well, despite the fact that we don't feel like either of these teams has enough to really be a contender, they're going to try to get themselves into the tournament. The Yankees, because their division stinks. The Mets because I still think the Nationals will pull away as they get healthier, but the league is all bunched up. They're no worse than the Pirates. They're really no worse than the Cubs. Um, the Giants may be better than them, but we'll see. Um, so we may actually, by default, have some pennant races through the end of the year. And then once you get to the playoffs, Mojo, who knows? But we're at that point where things are starting to take shape, and I think this is just going to be the Mets and Yankees in the muck all summer. They're going to drive you crazy. They're going to make you happy. They're going to tease you. you can, there's going to be days you feel like they stink, even though they're in a playoff spot or first place. So I think that's where this is headed, and that might make it a little bit more palatable so that we don't have to talk about Geno Smith and God help <laughs> us. Uh, you know, Rex Ryan, I'm sure, will make headlines, even though he's technically not in this town, but he decided to stay in the state. Well, the thing with baseball, everyone talks about football and the parody in the NFL. I think baseball's got more parody. I mean, I call it the muck of mediocrity with majority of the teams. I mean, you look at a team like the Tigers that everybody was pronouncing to be this great team coming into the uh, 
regular season with the pitching they have. Now, granted, Verlander got hurt, but the lineup that they put together, uh, the pitching that they have, the only question mark was what they were going to do in the bullpen. Did they upgrade that and improve it from a year ago? But with the, you know, Verlander and Price and, and the arms they have, they, they made the decision to let Scherzer go to the Nationals. But this is a team that's lost eight straight after last night. They blew the game with two out in the ninth uh, uh, to the White Sox and lost in, the, in 11 innings. So the Tigers have, have fallen back. Uh, you look at the American League, there's not one team that jumps at you that you can say, well, that team is a dominant team. That team is where I want to put my chips. Uh, because any team, the Royals, uh, you look at the Twins, they've been surprising. You know, it would be interesting to see uh, what Jim Cott has to say about the Twins because that was one of his uh, former teams. You look at the, at the West, I mean, the Angels got their flaws. The Mariners can't hit. I mean, Texas is a team that everybody ruled off at the beginning of the year. Now they're starting to put the pieces together. Hamilton's there uh, uh, you know, on that team. Uh, they, they seem to be making progress, and, and, the, and they're playing better. Uh, the East is just, you know, you don't know what you're going to get. And in the National League, I think you've got some decent teams. I think the three teams in the East, you, uh, in, the, in the National League, you've got the, the, the Nationals, like you said, once they get healthy. The Cardinals, I think, are the class of baseball. Then the Dodgers and the Giants are, are pretty good. Those four teams are pretty solid. And then after that, you've got a, a couple of good teams in the Pirates and the Padres and the Cubs that are young and up and coming. Uh, and then the Mets have an abundance of starting pitching, good starting pitching. But the problem is they're wasting a lot of games with below average defense and just terrible hitting. And that's the thing is when – is Sandy Alderson going to stop lawyering, as you like to say, and actually go out there and produce a bat or do something that will give this team a feel of where they can compete on a night-in-and-night-out basis, where you're not holding your breath and hoping that they can score and that the pitchers can't make a mistake. You know what I'm saying? Like It's like every game you you, you watch the Mets, it's like, all right, well, if they give up three runs, uh-oh, could this be the night You know, we're in trouble because we don't score more than two half the times. And if you can get that out of the way, and the Yankees, I think it's going to just come down to staying healthy uh, because they've got some players uh, that can play. It's just a matter of how long they're going to be able to stay on the field and be pro- uh, productive, uh, you know, health-wise. And well, I mean, the Yankees almost blew like a seven-run lead in the ninth inning, and you hear Joe Girardi talk about we need another righty in the bullpen, and um, you know the Mets, and it, it, the reports are that Sandy Alderson is aggressively shopping both Dylan G and John Neese. I think for a couple of reasons. First, you need to get Stephen Matz a spot in the rotation, but I also think the dollars that are there are preventing him from being able to go out, and we'll talk later about maybe some well, What are you going to get, Mike, for G and Nice now? I mean, both of them have I, not Well, here's well. the problem. A scout, I think it was Andy Martino said, a scout said, basically, the other team knows that the Mets have a surplus in starting pitching, that they need to dump these guys. They know that they need to dump the, the salaries. Nice has got his stuff gets worse every year. Some... I believe that there's something going on in that shoulder. He's never really got it fixed. He's only rehabbed it. Uh, G looked horrible the other day. And I've been a big Dylan G supporter. I think he's a guy, if he's healthy, you know, in the right spot, he's a good, you know, six-inning, three-run guy, gives you innings. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of value to that. But it's going to definitely be hard. And here's the thing for both teams. Because of the fact that you have two wild cards, which ironically, if you look at the split season, the 1981 season, that's kind of like a wild card race, that whole thing. So we, that's foreshadowing a little bit. But because of the second wild card, you even have teams like the Marlins, who right now are, are, are nine games under 500, who have a guy like Martin Prado saying, well, let's see how 
things shape up. Maybe we could get hot, get back in the race. I remember back in 1996, if you go back to some of the papers, the Orioles who went to play the Yankees in the ALCS and had this big payroll. I think they had the highest payroll in baseball. They were like five games under 500 after the All-Star break. And Peter Angelo said, you know what? They were about to make a fire sale. They were about to sell Bobby Bonilla off, David Wells. And then he held off. He said, hey, let's give it some time because he committed so much payroll to this, to this team at the time when the Orioles were the big spenders. And sure enough, they get hot. They get into the playoffs. They knock off the Indians. They play the Yankees. Some say if it wasn't for Jeffrey Mayer, they may have been in the World Series. So you don't know. So it's very hard for owners who have invested to say, okay, let's pull the plug now. Well, even if you're a couple of games under 500, you're really not out of it. And I think that's what's going to make it hard for both the Mets and the Yankees to make improvements. And can the Mets, with the injuries to the offense, muddle through another six or seven weeks? They're not getting David Wright back before August. They may not get him back at all this year. All right, they'll get Darno and Herrera back. You know, who knows about Murphy? But they really need some offense. And the Yankees, if they want to get a better pitcher, in the, you know, to back into the rotation, if that's something they want to do, if they want to go out and get another arm or two for the bullpen, I don't know if those are going to be available. Nobody's going to help these teams anymore. Nobody's helping the Mets and the Yankees. So I think that'll be something interesting, and I think that that's going to be a big problem. Yeah, the thing with the Yankees is years ago, everybody was always looking to dump salary, and, and guys were always available for the Yankees as long as they would take, you know, Lance Berkman that one year, they got Fielder one year, you had Strawberry came one year. I mean, they always were able to go and get somebody uh, down the stretch that other teams were looking to dump their salaries, but now that isn't the case uh, with a lot of teams anymore because, as you said, Teams are in it right until August because the second wild card makes you in contention right up until the very end. And there's a chance if you just get hot. I mean, you look at the Royals and the streaks that they had last year. They were good for a stretch. The Mets they were are a team. You don't, they, you don't want to face the Mets in the postseason. I mean, not that they're, you're, you're afraid of them per se, but you've got to face Harvey, DeGrom, Syndergaard, maybe Mats. We'll, we'll keep Mats out of it. We don't always do the big league level. Um, you got that. You got a you got a good closer in Familia. I think the bullpen, if managed properly, is pretty good. And look, they have enough impact bats and veteran bats like Granderson, Kadire, Murphy. When he comes back, Dude is having a, a a really good year. Darno could hit. They have enough bats that if they're healthy and they're and they're performing up to expectations, they could be dangerous. So you don't want to sell off. But at the same time, and we'll talk about it later when we we touch a little on the Rangers how. You know, the Rangers now are going into that period where a lot of what they've invested in this team now, it's the Bills coming home to deal with draft picks, you got to go for it. And I think it was Adam Rubin who said it earlier today, and this is where I never criticize the Yankees, although they can be irresponsible at times about it, is like, I don't want to hear about next year. I don't want to hear about six-man rotations. And we'll get into this whole role and how you know, the Mets are lucky they're even in contention because they've been so, injuries are part of it. It's been so scattered with roles and who's hitting where and who's playing where and six-man and five-man rotation. But at some point, you have to not be irresponsible. There's a point by – there's a difference, Mojo, if you're driving a car by going over the speed limit responsibly and driving 90 miles an hour. And sometimes I think the Mets love to – the Mets are like the guys – Sandy's like the guy in the right lane. Or no, in, in New York, it's in the left lane going 55. They're going to do the speed limit. Slow and steady is going to win, and everybody's behind them going, oh, good God. That's the Mets, slow and steady, 55. You know what? Take a risk. Go up to 65 miles. Heck, if there's no cops around, go up to 70. They're not going to pull you over. Now, if you go over 70, now, now you're getting irresponsible. And that's the part. Will they have, will Sandy Alderson, for the first time, have the ability to go out and make a big move? 
get that bat that they're missing with David Wright, maybe mortgage a piece, not mats, but a piece that might provide a little bit of pain, an asset, quote-unquote, but gives them an opportunity to potentially win because you know what? In three years, Mojo, you might not have Harvey. Who knows about DeGrom's health? Who knows about Matt's? Who knows about Syndergaard? Nothing is forever anymore. This is not a decade type of thing. Well, you mentioned, and, and I know we, we're up, we're going to take a, a, a quick time out here in, in a second, but you mentioned Harvey. Three and a half years, he's going to go to free agency. Boris is his agent. There's no chance he's getting a, uh, the Mets a hometown discount. It, it's like, go for it. You have him here. See what happens. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, you face that uh, – bridge when you get to it down the road but i just can't foresee you know the mets getting an easy contract negotiation with harvey in a couple of years so you have him he's your stud he's your ace go for it get the best team around him and uh, you know the rest of the young pitching and can go for it i i couldn't agree with you more on that point mike i, I i'm so tired of the assets and the wait till next year and you know let's just hold on to the pieces that we have and all all that other kind of stuff it's like having the nice sports car and you like you said in uh your analysis don't Go you know more than fifty five miles an hour, and that's the Mets. They just never want to push push the, uh, the the pedal down and go for it. They always want to take take it easy and take the safe road, and, and it, it just doesn't work. Baseball is there; the opportunity is there uh, to to make a move. And if you've got the pieces, which they do with the pitching staff, you know now just add a couple of uh, bats to it and upgrade the defense a little bit, and you'll be right there in the mix because there's nobody out there that's head and shoulders. Uh, better than you if you you make the necessary adjustments to your team. All right. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have former big league pitcher. You guys remember him for his time announcing Yankees game, Jim Cott, uh, joining us, and uh, we'll take you all the way up to noon. You're listening to the Weekend Watchdogs, Mike Silva and Jim Mojo Morrison subbing in for Joe Bono. The number is 646-716-8187, and you can check us out live or on replay at theweekendwatchdogs.com. We'll be back right after this. It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Every Saturday between 10 and noon, Mike Silva and Joe Bono bring you the Weekend Sports with a New York slant. A one-stop shop of quality commentary, hard-hitting debates, intelligent guests, and entertaining pop culture references. Go to WeekendWatchdogs.com for an archive of the latest shows, iTunes subscription, and to contact the show. It's Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Don't miss it. It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Mike Silva and subbing in for Joe Bono, Jim Mojo Morrison on this uh, nice Saturday morning and uh, special guest with us. Uh, you all know him, 25-year big league career, Yankee broadcaster, seven-time Emmy Award uh, nominee, and uh, also a pretty good fielding pitcher as well. It's uh, Jim Cott. Jim, Mike Silva, Jim Mojo Morrison, how you doing this morning? I'm doing just fine, guys. Thank you. Jim, let's uh, let's start out with your uh, you know the former team that used to broadcast for the Yankees. It's been an odd start to the season. Look, they're in contention, they're in first place. A lot of that has to do with the division. But you know, I look at you have this great end of the bullpen. 
you've got a couple of really good starting pitchers. I mean, top-notch, maybe tops in the league. A couple of vets playing a little bit of softball there, and A-Rod and Teixeira, it seems like they're, uh, it's like a slow-pitch softball team sometimes with them. And uh, the offense is inconsistent, and then you have issues in the back end of the rotation. What, give me your feel about the Yankees, because they're contenders, obviously, but it doesn't always feel like they are. Well, I think that can be said with every club in the division. You know, Tampa Bay made a little run. Uh, Red Sox started out pretty good in April. Um, keep waiting for Toronto and Baltimore to get a little traction. So it seems to be that division that uh, will probably have the lowest winning percentage maybe in all six divisions in uh, both leagues. But the Yankees are so hard to, to predict because they have a lot of veteran players with great pedigree. Uh, is healthy now, and he's having a great year. Uh, Beltron and Ellsbury, you never know, uh, you know which day they're going to be hurt. You know, you can't keep them in the lineup uh, every day. They always seem to have something that keeps them out of the lineup. And then, you know, a lot of unpredictability with their middle infielders in terms of their hitting. Uh, CC has not pitched, I think, what everybody thought he would be. Now they have Tanaka back, which is a big plus. So, you know, I think like all the other five teams, they're um, they're going to be around right through September, uh, depending on how healthy their veteran players stay. Jim Jamojo Morrison down here. Always a pleasure uh, to speak baseball with you. Uh, through the first quarter of the season, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on Alex Rodriguez. He was a guy Yankees kind of were trying to write off uh, in spring training, and he was just going to be a contributor. But yet, through the first uh, part of this season, Alex has been a mainstay, and without him, I, I don't think that they be, would be where they are. What do you think of the performance of Alex Rodriguez coming back off of the suspension? Well, I think it's been pretty remarkable, and I think the reason for it, uh, and, and I'm sure Alex wishes that he could have had this sort of uh, outlook on life and attitude back when he first started with the Yankees, is that instead of trying to, and I don't mean this in a mean-spirited way, but instead of trying to impress people with how good he was and what he was going to achieve, uh, if you had just have done what he's doing today, where he's much more grateful for the opportunity to play baseball, he's much more relaxed. You see him dishing out a lot of good compliments to his teammates, and I think he's having fun, and, and he's he's a more relaxed player, which usually uh, transfers into being a more productive player. So it's a pleasant surprise, and I'm happy for him. Jim, as a former pitcher, I mean, with Masahiro Tanaka, you, you hear about the tear, and I know nobody knows for sure the impact of tears, and, and I'm, I'm sure you agree every pitcher has aches and pains. They're never going to be 100% healthy. But between the decreased velocity, you, you, you still see good performance, but it's a ticking time bomb. I still feel almost like why not just get yourself clean and healthy forward because you have this long-term contract. What are your thoughts about how the Yankees have handled it? Tanaka, do you, would you have concerns as the year goes on? And do you believe maybe he should have addressed his uh, his elbow issues already? Well, you know, like you you mentioned at the start, the unpredictability. Um, I injured my what's now the Tommy John surgery. Actually, it's Frank Job surgery, but I had that same injury in 1967 before they had that procedure. Didn't have MRI, so I didn't know exactly how bad it was damaged in those days you wouldn't even think about having surgery it took me about two or three years to get back to full strength uh, i injured at the last start of the season so i had all winter to rest and i was a pretty compromised pitcher 
but I was able to pitch. And I think the same thing with Tanaka. I think we are so uh, infatuated with how hard a pitcher throws that we forget that a pitcher can still pitch and his arm is seldom going to feel 100% every time he goes out there. It sickens me to read where pitchers had to leave the game because they had a little stiffness on the left side of their neck or they had a little tightness in their oblique. I mean, if you start 35 to 40 games a year, your body's never, your arm's never going to feel 100%. And so that being said, I think Tanaka is a very bright young man, knows how to pitch, and I think he can pitch just fine with the minimum I shouldn't say minimum with the you know with the velocity that's not as great as it was at the start. He might even be a better pitcher, and only time will tell whether that thing is healed or whether it's going to break loose. I know there are guys, and most of them are media types who have never put a uniform on that will say, "Oh, I can tell by a guy's motion uh, he's going to need the surgery." Well, nobody knows. Uh, you could have a motion that looks perfect, and all of a sudden, bingo, there it goes. And of course, we. We all hope that doesn't happen to Tanaka. He, he's a lot of fun to watch. Last question on the Yankees, because we do want to talk about the Mets. Uh, in this day and age, unlike when you played, the bullpen is, is paramount. You, you're going to need 9 to 12 outs. And the thing about the Yankees that, despite maybe some concerns about the back end of the rotation, is that Andrew Miller, Dylan Batances are just, I mean, it's amazing. I don't know if you've looked at the stats. I'm, like, looking at their stats today, and I'm like, it, it's just amazing what they've done. And, and you wouldn't think that this would be, uh, as clear-cut for the Yankees, because you, you lost Marion Rivera a couple of years ago. Uh, talk about that back into the bullpen, and, and it's been amazing what they've done so far and how valuable that could be to make up for some of the, I think, shortcomings on the roster. Well, the biggest surprise to me is Andrew Miller. I mean, I remember seeing Andrew make his debut uh, when he was a member of the Tigers back, uh, you know, I don't know, eight or nine years ago at least, and then after several trades to different teams where he was used as uh, they attempted to start him, then he was a lefty-lefty guy. And I I just never thought he was going to have the control to be a consistent closer. He still has a few bouts of, of wildness, but he's got the stuff to, to overcome it. And uh, so he's been a pleasant surprise for the Yankees. I think the, the key there, we knew how Batances, how dominant he was even last year, is in this day and age of a lack of complete games, uh, you know, you have to try to win them while you can win them, and you certainly don't hold your relievers out for September, but you do hope that they get a little breather so that they will be as strong and effective in September as they have been here in April and May. Jim, we're talking with longtime Major League pitcher, Emmy Award-winning broadcaster Jim Cott here on the weekend watchdogs. Sliding over to the other New York team, the Mets, a team that is blessed with an abundance of good young pitching uh, but seems to be lacking uh, on the offense and the defensive side of the game. The Mets recently have announced that they're planning on scrapping the six-man rotation. Uh, they're probably going to go back to the five-man rotation. You came up in an era of four-man rotations. What are your thoughts on the six-man rotations? Does it maximize your pitching? Uh, what are your overall thoughts on it? Well, I, personally, I would have rather pitched on the third day than the fifth day. Uh, we pitched every fourth day, and then occasionally, uh, I think I did it ten times one year on the third day, with, which meant two full days rest. You feel a little more comfortable on the mound. Uh, there's no reason that pitchers today could not do that, except the, you have to be trained in the minor leagues. I mean, I pitched for 
Jack McKeon, when I was 19 years old, Jack was my playing manager out in Missoula, Montana, and I pitched like 250 innings, and I pitched every fourth day. So I was trained to do that. Uh, you can't expect the pitchers that aren't trained that way to do it, but six days is too much. Even Matt Harvey, a while back when he had a day off and he had to skip a day, he just said he didn't feel as comfortable in that next start. I'd much rather see him go to four days than six days, so I'm I'm happy they're going back to five. I think really all all it does is if you go to six days, you, you are going to have to do a, a certain amount of throwing between starts in order to keep, uh, you know, to stay sharp. I like to throw every day just a little bit just to get the touch and feel and the feel of the mound. And uh, so no matter how many days you have off uh, between starts, that it's just uh, – uh, according to how what, how much you're going to work between those starts. You know, you can throw once and pitch every four days. You can throw twice between starts, throw every five days. You mentioned Matt Harvey, the Mets' uh, young ace pitcher, coming back uh, from the Tommy John uh, surgery, or the Frank Job, as you like to call it. What are your thoughts about his transition back this year, coming off the surgery? Have you been surprised with the ease that he's uh, been able to come back and the results that he's had? Well, not really knowing that, uh, you know, I got a lot of good information uh, where I lived down in Florida in the wintertime. Tim Tuffle lives down there, and, and, and Matt was going through his rehab, and I, I know Dr. David Alchek. And I think the key there uh, with anybody, whether you're getting a knee replacement, which I've had done uh, several years ago, it's the prehab and the rehab. Now, you can't do prehab with an arm injury because you never know when you're going to injure it, but... I think Matt Harvey was very diligent in taking, and the Mets were, in taking the proper amount of time off and going through a complete uh, healing process and monitoring very closely so that when he did get back to throwing, uh, he was ready to go. And as Dr. Alchak told me when we played golf this winter, he said he, he's ready to go right now. I mean, he was, he was pitching in spring training like it was mid-July, and, and I think that's all a credit to him and the Mets that they went through the proper rehab period of time. Former big leaguer Jim Cott joining us. Uh, when I knew you were coming on, Jim, I was thinking of this, and I wanted to get your take. One of the things that drives me a little nuts about the Mets is twofold, and it's a lot of teams in baseball today. First, this thing where, and, and nobody ever really comes out and says it directly, but that the front office dictates a lot of what the lineups on the field and, and what the manager does. And, and I understand the front office is always involved, but you hire a field manager, manager to manage, and as the GM, you have input to be, give suggestions, but you're, you're putting the roster on the field. And what I see happen a lot with the Mets is that roles change all the time. One day, Ruben Tejada is the third baseman. He's going to be there. Uh, they, that's what they say publicly. And three days later, he's at second, and they're shifting Murphy to third. Uh, one day, they're doing a six-man rotation. Hey, this is going to be like that till August. Uh, you know, three days later now, it's back to a five-man rotation. I think as a ball player, and I've spoken to some where they really, they're, they're creatures of habit, and I have to think that that kind of shift consistently, even though sometimes it's warranted because of injuries and what have you, it's got to drive them nuts, and it's got to affect performance. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, you sure have to know your personnel as a manager. I think there are some guys that are capable of doing it. I, I think probably the most remarkable change of positions during my baseball lifetime was in 1968 when Mayo Smith and the Detroit Tigers took Mickey Stanley, who was their center fielder all year long. And the last week of September, they put him at shortstop. 
and he played there during the World Series and played. To, they had a light-hitting shortstop named Ray Euler, and they wanted a little more offense, so they put Jim Northrup in center, and Mickey Stanley came in and played short, and he played in the World Series like he'd been there his whole career. Now, not everybody can do that. So a manager, you know, Mickey was a terrific all-around athlete. Uh, manager has to know his personnel, which guys can do that and which ones won't. I mean, Pete Rose played 500 games at five different positions. Nobody else has been able to do that. He'd come to spring training, and Sparky would say, hey, we need a we need you in right field this year. Okay, get his glove and learn how to play right. So he had the right attitude for it. He could adapt to it. Not everybody can do that. And that's where, as you said, the uh, the communication between the front office and the manager, uh, nobody knows their personnel like the manager does down on the field. And it has to be his decision and his approval uh, for that to be able to work. If we shift just to the league so far here, you know we're a little over 30% of the way through the season. Give me your take. What are you enjoying watching so far this year? Maybe teams, some things, events. What has bothered you a little bit? If you had to give your uh, Jim Cott synopsis of the baseball season so far, what would you do? Well, I sure like what uh, uh, Dallas Keuchel and now Corey Kluber are doing. You know, uh, Corey got off to a tough start. He didn't pitch all that badly. His record doesn't look good, but what he's done the last few starts is remarkable. And if you asked a lot of baseball, you know, casual fans on the street, do you know Corey Kluber or uh, Dallas Keuchel? They say, who are these guys? So it's been fun to watch them. And in Dallas's case, to see how the Astros, you know, they were on the cover of Sports Illustrated last year with the with the banners said 2017 World Series champs and I think we all kind of grinned at that but uh, you know the way they're playing right now uh, uh, you know looks like they might have a chance to get into postseason play already so that's been a surprise and uh, and then the twins which is my former team uh, I didn't think they were going to be much of a factor yet this year I thought they were looking a little farther down the road but uh, I think what Paul Molitor has done there, not that Ron Gardenhire didn't do a good job, but uh, Molly seems to have a lot of respect to the players. They got Torrey Hunter back over there, and, uh, I mean, they're leading the division. So those are a couple of the pleasant surprises. I think the uh, the disappointing ones, one to me in particular, because I follow that team rather closely living up here in Vermont during the summer, is the Red Sox. I really thought that they – would be a much more consistent team. I thought their offense was solid, and everybody said, well, they don't have an ace starter. Well, they really have, uh, when Masterson is healthy, they really have uh, five pretty solid big league starters that potentially, uh, you know, Porcello could be an ace. Joe Kelly has the best stuff. He could be an ace, but they've certainly underperformed so far. But they're in a division that if you go on a winning streak or two, you'll be right up there at the top. He's a 16-time Gold Glove winner, a 1982 world champion, a uh, veteran a baseball man. Jim Cott uh, talking baseball with us here on the weekend watchdog. Jim, the All-Star game is about a month away, and they're, one of the things they're going to celebrate is the franchise four and the four greatest uh, living players uh, in the game uh, today. You pitched against Sandy Koufax, I believe it was the 65 World Series, three times, so you have a great measuring stick from the 50s through today. Who are, in your opinion, the four greatest living players uh, today? 
you know, we, we get asked to do that uh, on, a, on a team basis when we do our, uh, we being Bob Costas and myself on our MLB showcase game. And recently I had to pick my four franchise players for the Yankees out of eight. Well, you can imagine when you're looking at Mariano Rivera, Derek Jeter, Lou Gehrig, Babe Ruth, uh, Mickey Mantle, on and on. How are you going to pick four out of those guys, you know? And I just went by seniority with those, with DiMaggio and uh, and Mantle and Mickey and uh, Garrig, I think. Whitey Ford didn't even make it. So when you look at the four all time, uh, it's hard to limit it to four. Certainly Sandy stands out in my baseball lifetime, uh, seeing him up close and personal. Uh, you know, Bob Gibson, Marichelle, not too far behind, Seaver, my friend uh, Steve Carlton, there's a lot of them. Uh, I was a big Hank Aaron fan. I would think that Hank Aaron and Willie Mays will be among those. And then, you know, then you're looking at Mickey and, and uh, uh, Ted Williams and guys of that nature. So it, it's so difficult to limit it to four. Uh, you know, the eras are different. The equipment's a little different, the style of the game. So you almost have to go era by era. One of the things that they're trying to do at the minor league level, I work, as you know, down in uh, Charlotte, they've implemented a pitch timer this year with the 20 seconds in between pitches. They've been more concerned with trying to speed up uh, the games uh, for viewers and to get the young kids to stick with it. What are your thoughts on, A, the timing of pitches, uh, Jim? And do you think that they've done a a decent job this year in speeding up uh, the, the length of games this year? Well, the games that I've done, I, I have noticed a big improvement, and it, it, it really shouldn't be a pitcher's clock. It should be a hitter's clock because now, although I did see, you know, Dustin Pedroia still has, there's those habits. It's hard to get big leaguers to change habits. They really should do it in the minor leagues, and I hope they do, uh, that hitters are now keeping one foot in the box or staying in the box, which automatically makes the pitcher work a little bit faster. And I've noticed when you look at times of games, uh, they roll along in a, in, a, in a lot more crisp fashion. There's not as much time stepping out of the box, fixing your batting gloves and things like that. They could knock a lot of time off if, if they either, like pitchers cannot use a tacky substance because it's supposedly illegal. Well, it would be nice if they would then not allow hitters to use batting gloves or pine tar or wristbands, you just had to grab the bat and go play. So they wouldn't step out of the box and adjust those uh, batting gloves, and that would probably knock 20 minutes off a game right there. Two quick questions, Jim, before we let you go. The first one, we have Jeff Katz, the mayor of Cooperstown, joining us later uh, this program, and he just came out with a book about 1981, the split season with the strike. You were there. Uh, any, you know, some quick thoughts on, on that and what happened that season? And oh, interesting year in the history of baseball. Well, it was a disappointing year. I was uh, was near the end of my career, and from having been a player rep and knowing Bowie Kuhn, the commissioner, I said, you should step in with your with your slogan in the best interest of baseball and, and get the owners together. You know, you, you just couldn't get the owners to unify like you could the players. And I said, there's no way that the players are going to give in. I said, I'll never get the money back uh, in my career that I'm going to give up by this strike. We knew they had 50 days of strike insurance, and uh, that's how long it lasted. It was so disappointing because I think the owners and the commissioner could have gotten together and and made a labor agreement and, uh, and made it a complete season. 
Unfortunately, I was a member of the Cardinals that year, and we had the best overall record, uh, but we, we didn't have the best record in either half, so we never got to postseason. And one last one. You know, everyone's making a big deal about this switch pitcher, Pat Venditti. Uh, but I came across a Golf Digest article. You're a switch golfer. Is that accurate? Did I misread that? And you're actually a pretty good switch golfer. I mean, I can't, I'm lefty. I can't even golf lefty. Forget lefty and righty. Well, I have a lot of fun with it. I've Up here in Vermont, I think the last three days I've played uh, around each way, and I enjoy it. But it's uh, certainly not the, not the talent that Pat is showing by being able to, you know, to get big league hitters out as a righty and a lefty. That's, that's pretty impressive, and I'm happy for him. You know, he labored in that Yankee farm system for years, and uh, that was a big day for him getting called up and, and actually getting a hitter out as a lefty and as a righty. So it's a cool story, and I'm, uh, I'm glad he's doing it. Hey, well, you were generous at your time. Enjoy your weekend. Let's do this again, Jim, and uh, have uh, a good rest of the baseball season. I'm sure we'll catch up. All right. Thanks very much. Call anytime. That's Jim Cott, former big league pitcher. And Mojo, look, he could talk all he wants about the Mets and Yankees, and that's going to be plenty of interest on my part talking about baseball, getting his perspective four decades in the game. But a, a golfer that, gol- that, that that scores in the 70s, basically he's shooting his age, and he's a 6 handicap from his natural left-handed side and a 10 to 12 handicap on the right. I, I think my highlight of my golfing career has been a birdie on hole number one at some club down in South Jersey. Forget about being 70, what's Jim, in his late 70s? I believe he's um, 76. 76 he's golfing a six handicap jeez I, I feel stupid now i gotta get out to the links yeah he's he's uh quite the athlete i mean jim cott i mean 16 time gold glover i mean he could field his position and he could swing the bat i mean he was not a slouch at the plate uh as a major league hitter because back then pitchers actually cared about hitting you know both you know, american league and nationally they didn't go to the dh until 73 cock came up in 59 so they hit and they uh you know they took a lot of pride in their hitting back then uh he was a, a tremendous athlete i mean a good all-around uh player uh when he first came up he was a very good pitcher won 25 games in, in 65 uh was the pitcher of the year uh you know he was he was a good uh player 283 wins i mean like he just falls short based on the statistical narratives that these ha- they have for criteria for the Hall of Fame. But if you look at his whole body of work with the broadcasting and everything else, like we said at uh, the outset of the show, I mean, Jim Cott belongs in the Hall of Fame because he's just been an ambassador for the game of baseball for nearly 50 years, and he does a great job. I mean, you had him on the, the Yes Network, MSG, when they first started with the Yankees, uh, did the Twins. Now he's on the MLB Network. The guy, the guy knows his game, uh, Mike, and he, he he really can captivate you uh, when you sit down and uh, talk baseball with him. I've had the privilege of doing it both on and off the air. Uh, he, he's, he's a real special guy to talk baseball with. And on the offensive side, I mean, we all love Noah Syndergaard and that 400-something for home run a couple of weeks ago, but 16 home runs for Jim Cotton's career, 185 batting average. 16 home runs, uh, a couple of seasons where he actually uh, was a two eighty nine batter in uh, 1972 for the Minnesota Twins. Of course, as you get to the D- – well, he went to the National League after the, after the American League adopted the DH. So, you know, you, it wasn't – there were guys that actually had to hit back then uh, and were decent. I mean, not that the hit 185 is anything special, but you weren't an automatic out. So, so that is interesting. By the way, the, the number is uh, 646-716-8187. Uh, we'll take some baseball calls 
between now and the 11 o'clock hour. As I said, Jeff Katz, mayor of Cooperstown, author of the book Split Season 1981, will be joining us in the 11 o'clock hour as we go back in time, a little bit of a baseball-centric uh, segment. We'll talk a little Belmont later. I'm sure Mojo will break it down and maybe win you money. We'll get to the NBA Finals. But right now, now that the Rangers' playoff run is over, we're really in that mode of baseball and really making baseball the center of attention because there is a lot of other stuff uh, coming up. He said a, a couple of interesting things, Mojo, um, and I couldn't agree more with him. You know, first, it's a little bit different when you talk about the investment that teams are making in pitchers right now, but I did laugh because, and Frank Isol was talking about this now in the NBA where everybody's doing sleep studies and health studies and they're trying to bring Wall Street to the sports, and you've got it in a couple of ways. In the NBA, it's the rest day because of the wear and tear on the game and the four games and five nights. And then you look up and you're like, well, if I had game seven at home, well, you, you gave away about 12 to 15 games of resting players. And baseball, it's about pitch counts and innings limits. And, and I'm all for being progressive. But if anybody thinks six-man rotations, taking players out at every ache and pain, shutting them down, um, trying every single kind of chemistry experiment that's out there is really making a difference. I got to wonder if it's, and I don't think there's any way to honestly assess it statistically because DL days don't seem to go anywhere uh, anytime soon. Pitchers are continuously getting hurt. To me, it's the equivalent of the pitcher batting eighth. If you do any statistical information, it's like 0.1%, you know, less than a tenth of a point difference in offense. I would say that some of these injury practices are doing very little. Now, we don't have the data. Maybe there's some medical expert that does. But I compare a lot of this to the equivalent of the, the pitcher batting eighth. It makes you feel good. It looks good. You sound smart. But in the end, we're back in the same place, maybe in a worse place. I couldn't agree with you more. Sometimes, you know, people try to reinvent the game, all these analytics. And, you know, bottom line is baseball comes down to, you know, pitching, fielding, you know, and, and hitting. I mean, do you execute the fundamentals of the game of baseball? All these statistical things that they throw at you, they help to a degree. But like I said last week before Game 7 of the Rangers, the only stats that matter – last Friday were the ones compiled between 8 o'clock and midnight. You know, Rangers had never lost a game seven at home. Lundquist is this, this, that. And the bottom line, when they dropped the puck, Tampa Bay executed better than the Rangers last Friday night, and and they won the game. And that's what sometimes people get too lost in these stats and, you know, we're going to rest guys. I mean, it's almost like, you know, it's like they're afraid to play. You know what I'm saying, Mike? It's like, well, just get out there and, you know, back in the day when a guy, you know, got uh, bumped or bruised, you know, the old saying, rub a little dirt on it and get back out there. You know, those days are gone. They, They pamper these guys to the point where I think that they get hurt more because they're not conditioned in a sense of being tough. You, you know what I'm saying? Like their bodies. Well, it's are even so roles, Mojo. It's roles. I mean, there's extremes to everything. I mean, you look at. I think roles are so important because in baseball, the bullpen is a role position, and not to say you have to pitch the same inning every week. Uh, excuse me, every day. But you got to have an idea of when you're going to come in. Dylan Batanzas last night, eight-one game. I don't care what he said. He wasn't prepared to come in that game. He didn't think he was going to come in the game. Then he was called into the game, and he was a little spotty. Because you've got to get that adrenaline up. You've got to get mentally ready. It's a lot about execution and repetition in baseball. With the Mets, C. 
six-man rotation, five-man rotation. Now, Andy Martino reported, and it's interesting because we'll talk about this later, it connects to, like, you know, salary and money and the strike in 1981. But the thing that the players were most ticked off about with the six-man rotation is it's affecting their arbitration cases because innings, you know, arbitration is not what the stack guys want. Arbitration is very basic. It's service time. It's the, it's the traditional counting stats. You know, maybe you can get creative and throw in some advanced metrics as we get forward. But it's you know, arbit- the arbiter is looking at things pretty like comparable. Hey, this age, this production, and that's it. And if you if you do 20, 30, 40 innings less, it's going to affect you in arbitration. You are going to lose money. Now, I don't think that's why the Mets are doing that. I think they're trying to be too clever by half. But nobody has a role, and baseball players don't have a role if they're not. They're a third baseman one day and a second baseman the next, and they're a shortstop one day and a third baseman the next. That's a utility guy, and those are guys that are built for that. Those are guys that are, know that they have to be that role. That's not all 25 man, men on the roster. And I think roles are so important, and the Mets don't have any roles right now. And I think, to me, the biggest problem I have, and Cott talked about it, and you could talk about this generally, and we had uh, Seth Everett on last week to talk about it, is that these front offices think this is stratomatic. They think this is fantasy baseball, and you could still set the tone. You could hire a manager who thinks like you, but one of two things is going on, and maybe when you're doing your travels in minor league baseball mojo, you could find out. Either A, Sandy's basically telling Collins, here's today's lineup. You go out there, rah-rah the team, make sure everybody's on time, make sure everybody's doing what they got to do, or Collins is getting some instructions from Sandy and mucking it up because he's not really capable of disseminating the, the philosophy and bringing it out. Or number three, they're letting Collins make the decision, and Collins doesn't know what he's doing, and so is Warpin. I don't know if number three is fair, because I can't really imagine a longtime baseball guy like Collins being this incompetent as much as I don't like him. But I think the truth lies somewhere in between. I think it's number two, if you ask me. And it's a big problem. And Cop basically said, your field manager knows the temperature of the team. Let them manage. Let them do what they have to do. You know, that's kind of... The point that you know we've alluded to in the past, you know, where guys like Backman and Viola, the old school baseball guys that come in there, they they manage with a feel, they they get the fundamentals. And you mentioned roles, Mike, and and the point that people lose sight of in today's game. And and Jim and I talked about this last year when I I spent time with him and he was in Charlotte to do the AAA National Championship game. The bottom line is guys want to get paid. Years ago. You got paid if you went to the World Series and you won. Remember that World Series bonus? Guys were looking forward to that. That's what got them through the winter is when they went to the World Series, they got the bonus. Now, people, yeah, the ring, you know, the narrative of the ring, the ring, the ring, but guys don't look at that World Series bonus as the, the cure all end all. You know, it's kind of like one of those deals yeah, if we get it, we get it. We want to get paid. During you know for our stats during the season, that's why guys don't care about striking out 180 times, 200 times. As long as they jack those 30 home runs or 27 home runs or whatever that gets them into that stratosphere of, of you know the big contract where you know they drive the Cadillac, as Ralph Kiner used to say. You know those are the things that guys look at. They just want to compile the numbers. That will get them, like you said, to the arbitrator, cut and dry, black and white. This is what it is, and this is what I'm going to get paid. You know, the, the sense of, well, I was a contributor. I laid down five sacrifice bunts, which produced five game-winning runs. Uh, it, it, you know, it got my team to pen- Those things don't matter anymore. Where years ago, those were big factors in guys' thinking. And now guys today, it, it doesn't make a difference to them. It's all about what numbers can I produce for me so that I can land that contract, whether it be an arbitrator 
arbitration or with a front office negotiation. Let's go to the phone lines, uh, the Hudson Valley zip code 845. Give us your name and let us know what you want to talk about. You're on with Mike and uh, Mojo. Hey, this is Paul out in, um, in New City, New York. How are you guys doing today? What's up, Paul? How, just just wanted to get talking about these, these Mets. And, 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 and the one thing that I agree 100% with you is is the feel of the game with Terry Collins. And also the total, mix, in my opinion, Nobody's on the same page in that organization. You got people talking about having a, a six-man through August. You have Dan Watson talking about a six-man uh, rotation through August. You got Terry Collins, one, not even two people through it, talking about banding it. Where's where the where's this message coming from? What is that's the chaos I see. There's 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 no if it's coming from Sandy, they should be coming straight down. They should all be locked in step. You got Terry Collins on his running his own show. You have Dan Warthen. I'm really not sure what Dan Warthen does. I'm sorry. As as a as a pitching coach, you got you got a mind like Frank Viola in in the minor leagues and Backman. You have these two guys. In my opinion, if if you hear all the, you hear this talk all the time about, well, Alderson will never have will never have um, Wally Backman manage a major the major league team. Then why the hell is he managing the minor league team where he has he, he where he has every he has the ability to, to whenever these guys go down to to, to Vegas they, they have his his tutelage under him and and him and Viola you have the, the pitching you have you have Backman with guys like Flores who, who's who's turning into what we as, as a hitter what Backman has talked about you got a mind like Wally Backman that you're wasting in Triple A when and you have a you, in my opinion, an idiot in Terry Collins. I'm sorry. He's, he, he, he does, he, he's just, I, I, he's, he, he's a paper manager. He, he's, he's just, and you have him on, because you don't want to pay him, pay two people. It's, it's a joke. This whole organization in that regard is a joke. Two best sitting there in, in, in Vegas, and, and you have Dan Warthin and, and, and Terry Collins running the show in, in New York. What's going on? Well, well, I mean, that's a loaded question, and thanks for the call, Paul, on that I one. Did you, um, did you pay him to call? To, 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 I mean, no, I did not. Like I don't you. know. I did not pay him. <laughs> he sounds like you Listen, during the week on Twitter. I was gonna go. I was gonna go to break because uh, they do want to get into some NBA finals. But we, let's let's expand on this a little bit. I mean, Mojo, I'm gonna give you what I think and what I know and things like that. First thing on Dan Warthin, I'm gonna give you the best reason why Dan Warthin is a bad pitching coach. Number one, when Rick Peterson had John Main, who had awful pitching mechanics, if you ever watched John Main, and there are rumors that there are other reasons why John Main was good and not good, but I won't get into that, that he really knew he had to manage his um, time in the rotation. He had to give him extra days throughout the year. No, he wasn't going to go six-man rotation, so he plotted out where Main would get strategically extra rest, maybe not throw as much on the side, things as that, to, to, to keep him fresh did that through the middle of 2008. Peterson gets fired. Warthin comes in. That goes away. John Main's career went down the, the, the toilet right after that. And that, that's it. Now, it would have probably happened anyway. Peterson's not a miracle worker because he's got such awful mechanics, almost throws flat-footed. But I think he could have got a little bit more out of Main, and you might have been able to use him at the end of 2008 instead of guys like Brandon Knight and things like that. So that's number one. As far as Backman... You know, take it for what it's worth. You know, Mark Healy, who I, I've done work with, has a, a quarterly magazine at one point, Gotham Baseball Magazine. He's been in the media, covered the Mets, 
you know, not a guy like, you know, Andy Martino, but he seems to have been clued in before. You know, I wrote a piece recently on, send it out on Twitter, that basically you have Fred Wilpon, the patriarch of this organization, who's really running the show now, that loves Terry Collins. Sandy Koufax, he's close with, loves Terry Collins. And he just likes Terry Collins. So he likes Terry Collins. Terry Collins is going to manage the team. There's no logic to that. His son, Jeff Wilpon, likes Wally Backman and would love to have Wally Backman, although I think that Wally does scare them from an off-the-field point of view. And then um, you have uh, uh, Sandy Alderson, who likes Bob Guerin, and that's a totally different type of manager. So you have a lot of different people with different points of view. I believe that what's really going on is that Collins and Worthen are really just executing a strategy. They're, they're typical corporate middlemen. And I'm not quite sure that they're ever going to be anything more than that. And when they get asked questions by the media, they give what they think is going on, but that could change because maybe, you know, Sandy doesn't ever talk directly to the media. I'm sure he's more direct in person, but it seems like there's always that veil of secrecy. So I think it's a management structure breakdown. I don't think everybody's on the same page. I think if you gave Collins and Worthen the autonomy to do things their way 100%, not sure that's what I would want, but hey, that's who you hired. So you've got a lot of different dynamics going on there. And ultimately, this will undermine the Mets. They will not be successful. And I get the feeling you don't have a team. I think you have a team that wants to win and, and, and works hard and grinds it out. But I think you have a team that's right now very confused all the time because nobody knows where they're going to hit in the lineup. I mean, you're paying – I mean, I know we got four hits the other day. You're paying Granderson $15 million a year to platoon with John Mayberry? I don't get it. So, Mojo, that's my th- – I mean, you could go on for an hour. I could, I could do a solo show without anybody, without you, an hour, you know, just on that topic. Already. I, I, you know, I, I couldn't agree with you, you, know, you, you on um, almost all of the points uh, anymore. Uh, I think the caller made uh, a lot of good points. I mean, the problem with the Mets right now is there's too many mixed messages. You know, you go back to Lagaris, uh It's spring training. He was going to be the leadoff batter. Then he's not the leadoff batter. Granderson is leadoff. Now he's not, you know, you just don't know what this team is going to do on a night-to-night basis. Uh, there's no consistency. There's no roles. There's no defined plan there right now as to what they're doing. And I know a lot of it has to do with injuries, and he's forced to shuffle guys uh, up and down from, from Vegas, and he's trying to, you know, figure out how to get a lineup that meshes so that, you know, but it's like kind of that old saying of trying to make, you know, chicken uh, chicken salad out of chicken, you know what. I mean, there's not a lot to, to work with there, but the problem is, is they don't have any type of a consistent plan uh, from the top down as to what they're trying to do. It's just a hodgepodge every night. And uh, it, it gets very confusing to watch, and I th- I'm sure the players get very confused on it because baseball players are creatures of habit. And until you start establishing some sense of continuity there, I think you're going to continue to see these struggles, at least on the offensive side and the defensive side of, of the ball for the Mets. And that's you know another big factor that everybody overlooks is this team. I mean, you look at that eighth inning last night. They played singles into doubles and triples by the angles that they take on the ball. I, I mean, it's just a very frustrating team to watch if it wasn't for this pitching uh being so good that masks over these deficiencies this team could be in a lot of trouble and the fact that they have this pitching and they don't go for this right now this year it's very frustrating if you're a Mets fan all right let's take a quick break when we return we're going to do a little NBA remember we have Jeff Katz the mayor of Cooperstown an author of the book Split Season 1981. Later this hour, Mojo will give you all you need to know about 
American Pharaoh, the Triple Crown, and who to bet. Don't take my bet. You might as well just throw a dart at a, you know, dart at a dartboard on that one. And of course, we'll continue to take your calls six four six seven one six eight one eight seven. We'll we'll open it up to pretty much anything you want. You're listening to the Weekend Watchdogs. Mike Silva, Joe Bono will be. Excuse me, Jim Mojo Morrison subbing in for Joe Bono. Look at that Mojo. I kind of little slip there. It's like a Pavlov dog on that. I'm really used to it. Jim Mojo Morrison subbing in for Joe Bono. We'll be back right after this. Nick's beat writer for the New York Daily News, Frank Gaisola, joined the Weekend Watchdogs. Maybe it wasn't the plan, but maybe this is the best thing. They're bottoming out. They could get a top pick, like you said, and eventually, in the next two to three years, rebuild this the right way. I understand Carmelo's limitations and the age, but maybe this was the best thing overall, even if it wasn't the plan. And I know you don't share that opinion, but you got to at least give some credence to that thought. I just laugh at it because I think, you know, you know what the um, the movie or the Broadway play, the producers, is when like you know, they're trying to come up with the yes. worst play possible to go out of business, <laughs> and then it turns out to be a hit. The Knicks are like the opposite of it. Phil thought he was putting together a hit. Instead, it turns out to be a disaster, and everyone's like, he's a genius. Look what he's doing. We're going to get a lottery pick when we have all this cap space. That's the part that makes me laugh about it. But I think it is the smart play right now, absolutely, uh, to do what they're doing. I, I don't I don't have a problem with it. Listen to the Weekend Watchdogs every Saturday, 10 to noon, on Blog Talk Radio. Mike Silva and Jim Mojo Morrison subbing in for Joe Bono. It felt so bad. I kind of so used to just saying Mike Silva, Joe Bono. We'll be right back, and I messed that up. And how appropriate as we do a brief foray into the NBA that we have uh, our segment that just played during the promo of uh, Frank Isola joining Mojo and I. And uh, Mojo, so Frank, did say we had Frank right. Isola popped on, we surprised bought, us at, right, at the eleventh hour, and jumped on. Yeah, I mean, he's, and actually I texted him because he's been mad at me recently for a variety of reasons. I said, oh, would you still come on the show? He was only in time. So, you know, maybe maybe we'll have to call uh, Frank again. Interesting that Frank talks about Phil Jackson and the promo, and, you know, Phil's a genius, and it's really not his plan. So here we are in the NBA Finals, and for some reason, people are you know so polarizing. It's the old lazy debate, LeBron versus Jordan. But I think the bigger debate is this. Is I think the Golden State Warriors are a serious championship contender in any era. I mean, they have some metrics that put them right up there with the, the mid-'90s Bulls. I'm talking about the second 3P, not the first, where they were so dominant, so difficult to beat. And I look at the Cleveland Cavaliers, despite the fact they have LeBron, even with Kyrie Irving, who's now out, and who's had a host of injuries, so who knows what's, you know, what he's going to be when he comes back. As a, you know... A good team and a bad conference. You know, yeah, Shumpert and J.R. Smith were big contributors. They were in the right situation because they were the best player in the league. But to me, the, the Cavs are like a sixth seed in any other – in the 90s when the Knicks and the Hornets and the Bulls and the Cavs and all those teams in the East were out there, the Pacers, the Heat. They're a sixth seed. You know, they're tough. You don't want to face LeBron in a short series. But let's face it, I don't think the, 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 the Cavs are a number one seed in 1995 or 1994, 1993. And then they come to the finals, and all of a sudden, you know, everybody all of a sudden, you know, forgets all that. Not only that, then you have the Knicks fan contingent, or the Knicks fan contingent, all worried about uh, J.R. Smith and Iman Shumpert winning a championship. Who cares? So, to me, the Golden State Warriors, the the Cavs are going to win this series. They had the Warriors a little jittery there in game one. 
They're at home. You could tell they they were overdoing some things. They wind up getting the game to overtime. Was a chumpert missed a shot at the buzzer. Surprise. And then they lock them down. And then they lock the Golden State Warriors locked the the, the the Cavs down. I know Irving got hurt. To me, this series is over. No Irving. This was not a good team to begin with. J.R. Smith showed you why he's like uh, a high-risk high reward. He's like a lottery ticket. And he's a lottery ticket every day. Um, and I think the Cavs, the love for the Cavs, no, you know, again, no Kevin Love, no Irving, but still, even with those guys, I didn't think this was a great team. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that they, you know, they had LeBron, and LeBron in the East puts you to another level. Uh, they had, you know, they had some nice players with their, uh, Kyrie and, and and Love during the course of the year. Uh, they, they, you know, sustained a bunch of injuries. It took them a while to get their chemistry going early on, uh, where they struggled in the beginning. Everybody thought, oh, just flip the switch. LeBron's there. They, you know, a lot of like you said, the Stratomatic people out there, Mike. You just put the cards on the table, start rolling the dice, and it's just all of a sudden going to click. People don't realize the chemistry and the continuity and all the things that go into formulating a championship caliber team, whether it be in basketball, hockey, baseball, football, whatever it takes. You just don't roll out the balls and and become good. There's so much that goes into it. There's the human emotion factor and and all the other things. You know, Cleveland started to get their mojo, pardon the pun, you know, around Christmas time, January, they started to put it all together. And then obviously the injuries as the playoffs uh, started to approach uh, this is a good team but you like you said it's not an elite team it's not you know the bulls or the pistons or those type of teams that you know down this you know of years past where you get all these narratives of how great uh, this cavalier team i mean you look at some of the teams that they beat uh, over the course of the uh, season in the east i mean they're teams that just had no business uh, being uh, in playoff contention the, the, you know the nets the celtics uh, the knicks right. were horrible in the east i mean there's just so much uh, mediocrity and bad basketball in that conference. So this was a, a, a team that got there because it played in a weak conference. If you put the Cavaliers in the West, I don't even know if they, you know, they survive. Uh, you know, maybe they get in as a seven seed or a six seed right. uh, throughout the course of, of the year. But you look at like an Oklahoma City who didn't get in with all the injuries that they had with Westbrook and Durant, and you say to yourself, was Cleveland that much better than Oklahoma City? Uh, had they been forced to play in the West all year. Uh, and, and that's one of the questions, you know, when you hear all these narratives about, you know, the Jordan LeBron. LeBron is, a, a, you know, a generational player, and I have no problem with uh, LeBron James. Different game. player oh, than Jordan. Right. Way but I mean, the, way but it, it just drives me nuts that these guys out there, these narrative guys, and, and you know who they are, and we, you know, we talk about it a lot, that they've got to, it's got to be like, LeBron's the greatest and Jordan's not. It can't, you know, like you never heard people like knock Gretzky when it came to making, you know, like Mario Lemieux was great and Gretzky was great. Gordie Howe was great. Bobby Orr, like you didn't have to tear down. And these guys, for some reason, it's like that guy, this guy's got to be the greatest and that guy, you know, it's the greatest championship or it's the greatest this. I mean, you just let the 
moment breathe for what it was. I mean, you look at last year with Bumgarner and the narratives that were thrown out by you know by people after his performance. You know, well, I mean, that narrative's kind of died down now. I mean, he's pitching okay this year, but he's not you know Sandy Koufax uh, like he was for those two weeks last October. You know, it's just one of these things where you let this thing breathe. LeBron is a good player. You look at this Cleveland team uh, when he was off the court, they were on the verge of getting blown out of that building the other night. That's why I think that he kind of got gassed uh, towards the end because he was just out there for too long. And without him, this team would, you know, they wouldn't even have been in the game uh, the other night. Uh, but the problem is, is that the Warriors just have so much depth compared to the Cavaliers. I mean, Curry didn't even play that well. Thompson didn't even play that well. And no, they, they played still wound up Mojo. The they game played well. Yeah, they played tight a little bit. This is, they're a young team. They're at home. The finals, LeBron James. The thing that has annoyed me the most about the media with this, it's not the lazy LeBron Jordan narrative. We, we know that. But well, And I look, I have nothing against Iman Shumpert and J.R. Smith. I loved – I mean, he was annoying because he was such a feast or famine guy. But J.R. Smith at times was a warrior with the Knicks. And I mean that not in the, 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 the disrespect to military. I mean sports warrior. Uh, you know, he played hurt at times. Um, he was the reason why they won 54 games. Carmelo's sidekick. When he and Carmelo were scoring about 75% of the offense late in the year in, 2000, uh, in 2013, Knicks were tough to beat. But, but, and and Shumpert was a good defensive player, but let's remember he had some injuries. His knees are not great. Uh, at times I feel he never really uh, was, was, was into the team concept. He was more into being Iman Shumpert the brand or Iman Shumpert. You know, I think he thought he was better than he was. I think that's what's frustrated uh, Coach Woodson. But when they needed these guys, in the series against the Pacers. And I blame Tyson Chandler as much as anybody for the Knicks losing to the Pacers. The Knicks had no business losing to the Pacers in that series. They should have played Miami that year. Now, maybe they wouldn't have beat Miami, but I think they would have given them a, I thought they had a good shot, a shot at it. But, you know, Shumpert was nowhere to be found. JR was nowhere to be found. And all of a sudden now they go to Cleveland because they're in this, quote-unquote, horrible situation in New York. They're the reason why this thing went down the toilet. Let's remember it was Carmelo's injury, it, you know, it was you know, basically taking players and trying to fit round pegs and square holes with the triangle and a new philosophy. You know, basically, the new regime wanted their own guys, and these guys weren't that. There's nothing wrong with that. And that didn't mean they were bad players. It wasn't the kind of guys they want. But they sit around and they act like they were in prison. Part of the reason it went bad is because of them. And I never hear them say that. And I don't, I don't think J.R. Smith is a bad guy. I think he's a little misunderstood. He just makes bad decisions, and I think he plays a little bit to social media and plays a little bit to the camera and makes himself out to be a clown. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people that do stupid things like, uh, like J.R. Smith. They just don't publicize it on Instagram. So that's my problem. They're acting like they were in prison and the Knicks did all these things. They are the reason the Knicks went down the toilet. And then everyone's like, oh, what, what will Knicks fans do if they win a championship? You know what I'll do? Hey, congrats, guys. Good luck. And you move on. You know what I'm worried about? I'm worried about the, the draft because it's very muddy right now who's going to be available at number four. It's a risky pick number four. I'm curious about free agency. I don't care about J.R. Smith and Amon Shumpert until they play the Knicks next year, maybe in Cleveland. Who knows? I, I couldn't agree with you more uh, on those two guys. You're agreeing I mean, too it, much. My other partner yells and screams no, at me. No, well, you know, it. because like, it, it's like when you make sense, it's you know, <laughs> and you get away from the narratives on some of the And people are going to accuse. 
People are going to accuse you of Smith kicking my butt. Horrible. You know? I mean, I, I'm just not a big J.R. Smith guy. I think he's just you know, like, J.R. Smith. If he's focused for his, you know, he's usually you usually get a six month period where he goes to his team, like when he was with the Knicks. He was focused when he yeah. first got there. Right. Like you called him the Warrior. Yes, I, I agree with you. And then as soon as J.R. Smith had that first good run with him, the Knicks bit against themselves. They gave J.R. Smith his money, and that was the end of J.R. Smith. You know, he had the, the drug issue, you know, he can't be on time, all, all the things that drove Woodson uh, crazy, the same thing with Shumpert. And yet, the guy that took the heat for those two guys is Carmelo Anthony. You know, he's not the winner. He's not, I mean, he, they did exactly the other night what they did to Carmelo in the Pacer series. And but nobody criticizes LeBron. Right. Yes, but nobody will criticize LeBron. You know, and I'm not going to be the guy that's going to compare Carmelo to LeBron because I think that's the problem that all these Car- anti-Carmelo people have is that he's not LeBron. Well, he's not. Carmelo is Carmelo. LeBron is LeBron. They're two different animals as far as, like, you know, the players. And I don't animal, I use animal in a, in a, in a sports, you know, uh, uh, way uh, where you're saying that one guy is one um, – type of player the other guy is another type of player and you can win with both type of players if you put the right circumstances around those players and you saw the other night as good as LeBron was he didn't get anything out of Shumpert he didn't get anything out, out of Smith and, and and you know and then when Irving got hurt because Irving played a great game up until he got hurt it had LeBron posted up and maybe scored not and that game didn't go to overtime Irving doesn't get hurt and the Cavaliers have a game and right. you know this is a whole different uh, series that we're looking at now. They lose that first game. Irving's out, uh, and you're looking at a whole different you know, scenario now. I mean, it, it just yeah. goes to show you how LeBron made that one shot. And, you know, they always want to talk about, you know, Jordan versus LeBron. I mean, I don't remember Jordan missing big shots in big moments, you know, where LeBron has had a lot of different, you know, finals moments and playoff moments where, you know, he's come down to that last, and it didn't go in. You know, right. it, it just, you know, I, I'm not killing LeBron, but I'm just saying, like, the, the people will conveniently forget all these things. You know, they, and basically, we, they've, you know, if you listen to that four-letter network out there that loves to spin narrative after narrative, uh, you know, Michael Jordan was just a jump-shooting sh- guard. You know, right, they, they, right. they forget the entire body of work that Michael Jordan hey. uh, produced uh, back in the day. Hey, so uh, let's take a quick break. Uh, We're going to take the DeLorean. We're going to go back in time. Uh, As I said, we have a nice little feature for you. Uh, Split Season 1981 is the book. Uh, Jeff Katz, who's actually the mayor of Cooperstown. So we actually have the mayor of Cooperstown joining us. I think I got a parking ticket there like five years ago that I still owe money on. The I'm mayor just joking. Of Last now, what are your chances of getting the mayor of New York one day on this show, Mike? <laughs> I don't want. I don't want him. Let's put it that way. All right. Um, let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Weekend Watchdogs. Mike Silva, Jim Mojo Morrison subbing in for Joe Bono. Uh, when we come back, uh, Jeff Katz on Split Season 1981. We'll be back right after this. It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Every Saturday between 10 and noon, Mike Silva and Joe Bono bring you the Weekend Sports with a New York slant. A one-stop shop of quality commentary, hard-hitting debates, intelligent guests, and entertaining pop culture references. Go to WeekendWatchdogs.com for an archive of the latest shows, iTunes subscription, and to contact the show. It's Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. Don't miss it. It's the Weekend Watchdogs with Mike Silva and Joe Bono. 
All right. Weekend Watchdogs, our first show here in June. Belmont weekend. We've been talking baseball. We had Jim Cott on earlier, a little NBA. And then, of course, uh, Mojo's going to give you his uh, Belmont analysis so that you can make money. Don't listen to me. But let's take uh, a trip in the DeLorean. Uh, Split Season 1981 is the book. Jeff Katz is the author. You could check him out on Twitter, at Split Season 1981. And he's joining us now as we look back at a very interesting season in baseball history. Ironic that he comes on an hour after Jim Cott. Jeff, Mike Silva, Jim Mojo Morrison, how are you doing this morning? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, guys. So start off with the project. Uh, Obviously, you're up in Cooperstown, so you have access to the greatest baseball library that you could possibly ever ask for. Why this season? You know, why this book? What brought all this on? Because it's a great project. It's interesting, um, but it's never been done before. At least I don't think it has been. At least I couldn't see. Yeah, uh, it really is the first book about that year. Uh, I was 18 going on 19 that summer, so, you know, really kind of at the height of baseball love, love stayed pretty constant until now. Um, and Roger Angel, in his end-of-the-year recap of the season, he wrote beautifully, as he tends to, about the silence of that summer, how all the noise of baseball disappeared. And that image always stuck with me. Um when I started thinking about it more seriously a few years ago, and I read a lot of baseball books, I realized I've never read a book about that year. Maybe I missed it, but it turned out I didn't. There was never a book about that season, not even in 1982 or 83. So in order to read the book, I had to write it. Jeff, this is uh, Jim Mojo Morrison here. Uh, I remember that year as well, uh, 1981. It, w- it was kind of a weird year. Uh, I was basically the same age as uh, you. Uh, I think I was like 16 uh, during that uh, season. And it was kind of a weird year uh, as far as like all the different things that transpired. Uh, you had uh, the Yankees made their final run before the, their their lengthy drought. Uh, Fernando Mania. Uh, you know, the Expos made the playoffs for their first and only time up in Montreal. Uh, what specific things do you recall or, you know, that stand out from that year that you find the most fascinating from 1981? Well, the Fernando story is kind of the signature on-field story. And I was a freshman up at SUNY Buffalo, as far removed from Los Angeles as one could possibly be. But, um, Reading about Fernando, watching, I assume he was on Games of the Week, you know, uh, he certainly was a huge presence nationally. And I think his popularity and that Fernando mania is, is at some way, uh, in some way, the opposition that he was to what was happening off the field. So here's this 20-year-old kid pitching shutout after shutout. He threw five shutouts in his first seven starts. Um, just kind of the purity and love of the game that the romantics of us believe in, as opposed to kind of the on uh, off-field labor strife, a, a bit more aggravating to all of us. So I think people saw in him something particularly special. But as you say, you know, like the Yankees were a big story that year. I mean, people today, I think, think of Steinbrenner as, you know, kind of an elder statesman, somewhat calm owner of the late 90s, 2000 Yankee teams that won with class and professionalism, somewhat of a comic figure across the Seinfeld. 
But people like me grew up with George Steinbrenner as kind of an insane sadist. <laughs> and in 1981, I mean, he just tortured Reggie Jackson. He was, you know, meddling in the lineups every day. He was in Mr. the midst May of all that. Mr. May was born in that year. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, what's interesting is, uh, you know, there's this weird psychodrama between uh, Steinbrenner, Jackson, and Winfield. Winfield's not really part of it. He's kind of like a little separate and amused by it all. But Dave would have his own torture from Steinbrenner as the decade went on. So kind of recapturing Steinbrenner in the way I remember him as opposed to this more uh, lovable figure that came late in life uh, was, was interesting. That was a hallmark of late 70s and early 80s baseball. The book is Split Season, 1981, Fernando Mania, The Bronx Zoo, and The Strike That Saved Baseball. Jeff Katz is the author, Mayor Cooperstown. You can check it out now. It's available from Thomas Dunn Books. When you say the strike that saved baseball, I wanted to get your take on that because 13 years later you had the ultimate strike that almost killed baseball, and obviously we've had nothing but peace since then labor-wise. We'll see what happens going forward. Why do you feel this particular strike saved baseball? What's interesting about baseball labor negotiations uh, is the average fan kind of has this take, you know, players are greedy, end of story. And it's a ridiculous notion. You know, the salaries that players command are, are checks written by owners. Players can make as many demands as they want, but they don't have the control to pay themselves. Um, when free agency was granted at the end of 1975 and the big money started getting thrown around at the end of 1976, what happened right after that was increased attendance and popularity. Baseball was now talked about 12 months a year. Uh, because of negotiations and free agents. And competitive balance increased quite a bit because now the worst teams had access to really good players in a way they didn't have before. So all of the things the owners then were complaining about were false. Um, what the owners wanted was to revert the game back to kind of when they had the, all the power. Uh, and in that period, you know, I, I talk about this somewhat often, you know, this idea that us East Coast people, I was born in Brooklyn, raised in Long Island, that the golden era of baseball was the late 40s and the 50s is nonsense. I mean, if you were a Dodger fan or a Giants fan or a Yankee fan, yes, it was. If you lived in Pittsburgh or Boston or St. Louis, those were the worst years ever. So the players, by kind of sticking to their guns, believing in their cause, which was not free agency necessarily as a way to make more money because everyone was shocked at how much the owners were throwing uh, money at the players. But the players had gained something that we all have, which is the right to work wherever we want to in our field. By sticking to their guns, by fighting for that principle, they won the issue uh, and they saved free agency. And the 1980s were about the most diverse era in terms of World Series appearances and competitive balance ever. I think had the owners had their way, it wouldn't have been as great a decade. And I'm I'm so glad you said that because I remember watching the 30 for 30 about Fernando Valenzuela and they had clips of fans saying how greedy he was because he wanted an extension in spring training. And I'm curious during your research on this, because you just said it now, about how the owners wanted to drag this thing back to the days of the reserve clause. I think, including the former commissioner just stepped down because he was an owner then, that group of owners, they truly 
were the most anti-union, obtuse group of individuals against the union, where they colluded three times just years later. I mean, they did everything possible. And the fact that fans to this day, I still think, and maybe it's because the athletes make so much that we see their salary in the paper, they have no idea how much money the owners were basically holding back from the players. And believe me, I'm not, you know, Mr. You know, union guy here, but I'm amazed. I'm curious what you found out because the owners would do anything to suppress salary and to maybe enslave in a certain way the players under the old system. Well, I always find it very peculiar that a certain type of fan will say, I hate players. All they care about is money. I'm pro owner. <laughs> that, that to me is, that is like the craziest leap to me. What was happening from ownership back then is, um, and thankfully at, at the point I was researching the book, I had access to a lot of personal papers. Marvin Miller's papers are at the Kahneman uh, Labor Library in New, at NYU. Bowie Kuhn's papers are at the Hall of Fame. Harry Dalton, who was general manager of the Brewers, his papers are at the Hall of Fame. And, the, and I was actually kind of shocked. I believe that this was the case, but I was shocked to see it in writing. Everything the owners were saying publicly about how they really were negotiating in good faith was completely opposite of what they were saying in their private meetings. There are notes from their private meetings saying, we will not negotiate. We believe we have uh, this type of compensation for free agent signings that we want. We're just not actually engaging in fair labor practices, which is what the players were saying. And the owners were saying, oh, no, 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 no. That's just a tactic that they're using. But in the owners' private meetings, they were clearly not willing to negotiate fairly and were quite willing to provoke a strike. I mean, the players didn't want to strike. What was interesting, in 1980, a strike had been narrowly averted. The only issue left was on how to compensate teams that lost free agents. What was agreed upon mutually was that the owners could implement a thing called direct compensation, which in a sense turns free agency into a trade. But if the owners implemented that, the players could strike. So had the owners not implemented what they wanted, the players could not have strike, struck. Um, and in fact, the owners were looking to provoke a strike in 81 to the point where they even had gotten $50 million in strike insurance. So they wanted the players to strike. And there are notes on the margins of papers uh, in the Bowie Kuhn collection where he writes that. He's like, he called it the one bite theory. We want them to strike in 81. We're going to push them to strike in 81. And they did. The title of the book, 1981, Fernando Mania, The Bronx Zoo, and The Strike to Save Baseball. The author, Jeff Katz, joining us here on the Weekend Squawk. Jeff, you mentioned the free agent compensation draft, which basically was the end result of the 81 strike. And a lot of Mets fans, if they don't remember, probably some don't, that that's what cost them Tom Seaver the second time around because I believe the White Sox took him as a compensation pick for losing a free agent. Um, they only lasted, though, for, I think, what, four years with the, the free agent compensation draft. What happened with that? Why Was it the players that were opposed to it and they got it changed? You know, tell us a little bit about the compensation draft and why it wasn't a long-term solution. So, so just to pull back, what, what the owners were seeking was something called direct compensation. This is back in 81. What it would mean was if the team lost a free agent, they would have the right to pick from the major league roster of the team that signed that free agent, a player. 
Um, the team that signed the free agent could freeze 15 players. So you have a situation where the losing team could pick a pretty high-quality major leaguer as compensation for free agency. What was settled in 1981 was a pool system. So every team except a handful that said, we're not going to sign free agents. Every team that was willing to sign free agents had to put players in a pool, and if a team lost a free agent, pick from that pool, and that pool was made up of players from every team. So flash to, you know, post-1983, Seaver comes back to New York, has a losing record but a pretty good year, and certainly we all love seeing Tom back in New York. So Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the White Sox, told me the story that him and the general manager, Roland Keeman, and I think Tony La Russa, who was White Sox manager, are sitting around the old telex machines, the teletype machines, waiting to see the list of unprotected players. The White Sox had just lost Dennis Lamp to the That's Blue Jays. Was, yes. Yeah, so so they have a pick, and they see Tom Seaver. So they pick him. So Reinsdorf says to me, every time I picked a player from the pool, I lost another friend. So... <laughs> So the White Sox picked Tom Seaver. Fred Wilpon calls and says, how the hell could you pick my player? And Reinsdorf says, how could you leave him unprotected? Um, and Seaver was not happy, according to Reinsdorf, too, because he was happy being back in New York. But as Jerry Reinsdorf said, he told Tom Seaver, if you had an opportunity to pick Tom Seaver, what would you do? Which Seaver understood. And then he won, I think, 16 games and 14 games in those two seasons he pitched with the White Sox. It was a great pickup for the White Sox. But, you know, it was another kind of Mets gas. Uh, and then by 1985, the owners were asking for that pool system to be uh, removed. Now, when you look at the 1981 season, they had the first, it's sort of like what they do in the minor leagues. You had the first half winner uh, versus, you know, and then the second half they broke it up. But if you won both halves, you didn't get a bye. How do historians and people look back on that year as far as the competitiveness where you have a team like the Cardinals who had the best record, Jim Cotter just alluded to it uh, in the last hour, had the best record but didn't get into the playoffs. I believe the Reds were one of the better teams that didn't get in. I mean, what did you find when you talked to people as far as the overall competitiveness of that year and how they honored a champion? What, what do people think about that year? Well, it's definitely skewed for reasons you say. When the owner, the players had let the owners decide how to resume the season, and within ownership meetings, there were a lot of plans hashed out. Uh, one was just to resume the season, and actually, had they resumed the season, there were incredible real pennant races. The AL East, I think five teams were within two games of each other looking at the entire season record. But what they chose was kind of uh, a slap-together thing to um, ensure that the first-half winners, which included the Yankees and the Dodgers, uh, Tony La Russa said, look, if the Yankees and Dodgers hadn't won the first half, we wouldn't be talking about this system. And I think he's right. Um, what you ended up with was these two half winners. That is not that bad of an idea, but by not paying any kind of uh, attention and giving any credit to the teams that did better in the long haul. So the Reds had the best record in Major League Baseball and didn't make the playoffs. The Cardinals had the best record in the East, NL East, and didn't make the playoffs. That was really the whole. Um, but one, I don't think the owners really 
thought it through enough, and I think they were looking at kind of, you know, Kuhn and Seelig, as owner of the Brewers, was really looking at kind of implementing a next round of playoffs. Uh, the TV contracts they had nationally allowed for that. Um, so I think they were driven by TV coverage and possible more revenue, which is kind of always an owner's um, driving force. Interestingly, the Reds, the president of the Reds, Dick Wagner, he predicted it uh, as they were hashing out the split season plan. He said, so we finished a half game behind the Reds in the first half. What if we finish a half game or close to the Astros in the second half? We won't make the playoffs. And that's exactly what happened. So Dick Wagner voted against the split season plan and his team suffered the most. Interesting. Uh, we have uh, Jeff Katz, author of the book, Split Season 1981. Uh, one final question here before we uh, wrap up. I want to know what you got going on. You know, Mojo and I were talking off the air. You know, I was only four years old, so I have no memories. But he remembers being at Chase Stadium for Fernando Mania. You personally, you know, you're a New York guy. I don't know what you take away. There's always a memory when I think of 1988 as a kid or 1993. I'll take away a personal memory. What's your personal memory that comes up when you hear 1981 and, and, and maybe the thing that was the overarching thing for you as you were writing the book? My My personal memory is really of the 81 World Series. Um, I had grown up a Met fan, uh, and when they traded Seaver in 77, it really broke my heart. And it made me realize that I liked Tom Seaver way more than I liked the Mets. So <laughs> kind of, it kind of freed me from... Jeff, Jeff, I, the only time I ever cried in my life in sports as a fan was when the Mets traded Tom Seaver that day. That was, I was like, oh, you know, yeah. Man. <laughs> oh, yeah. We all remember watching the news. The trading deadline was coming to a close. He was live in the locker room. He was crying. It was the worst. So it, it really freed me from team allegiance. Um, I've never rooted for a team as passionately as I did for the Mets pre-June 1977. Um but I did kind of like the Yankees. They were a very interesting team. And that 81 World Series, where they jumped up to a 2-0 lead and then lost the next four, I mean, I can see myself watching those games. Um, but there's so much of that year that is easy for me to recapture, whether it's, you know, watching Fernando kind of for the first time, watching Pete Rose, watching This Week in Baseball, which was still kind of in its early days. That was you know, pre-ESPN as it is today, pre-cable TV, you know, this week in baseball was a must-watch if you're a baseball fan. It was the only way to really know and see what was going on. So uh, I've got a lot of memories, but that 81 World Series particularly uh, is kind of stuck in my mind. The Twitter handle is at Split Season 1981. The book is Split Season 1981, Fernando Mania, the Bronx Zoo, and the Strike That Saved Baseball. Jeff Katz is the author. Jeff, uh, Thomas Dunn Books, obviously, it's available from uh, Thomas Dunn Books. Uh, anything else, events, websites, things you want to let the listeners know about as you go around promoting this uh, really interesting project? Oh, thank you. Um, besides the Twitter handle, as you said, at Split Season 1981, uh, I have a website, jeff-cats.com, and on that uh, there's events that are scheduled. There's some reviews and press, and um, – there's a blog I write through that uh, website. So there's many ways to capture me. Have a great weekend. Thanks again. You were very generous with your time, and uh, good luck with the book, and let's catch up. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you very much, Jeff.
Jeff Katz, Mayor Cooperstown. I didn't even ask him about the ticket. No, there is really no ticket. I'm just trying to be funny. You know, Mojo, as I'm listening. uh, You know, uh, uh, our friend of ours, mutual friend of ours that you know, uh, he has this deal with me that we're going to go and when and if Mike Piazza gets into the Hall of Fame. So I think that, you know, we may be you know, calling Jeff and maybe get get him to uh, hook us up up there so we can <laughs> you, get close Now to you and, like, and, and you and thousands of other Mets fans are going to well, know about him. Well, we have him now, Mike. You know, we, we, had, we had him on the show. But, you know, you asked him about the memories. The two things that I remember about that, I was at uh, Shea. It was a Friday night. Mets lost one nothing to Fernando, ironically. Uh, it was I think it was like the end of May, like uh, on a Friday night, and they lost. But the other thing about that in the World Series, they had like four MVPs. I think Jaeger, Pedro Guerrero got MVP or co-MVPs in that World Series. And then Carter came back in the All-Star game. They had the All-Star game to, to kick off the after they came back from the strike. And playing for the Montreal Expos, who made the playoffs their one and only year that they were in the playoffs as the Montreal Expos. Gary Carter hit two home runs in the All-Star game, got the MVP uh, in August. And that's what, at, at Cleveland's Municipal Stadium. And that's what kicked off uh, the second half of the season uh, for that. And then Billy Martin's A's made the playoffs that year. And Fingers got the MVP with the Brewers. It was a very interesting year and like he said it like the dynamic of baseball unlike the 94 strike Mike when they came back the financial structure of baseball was so skewed it killed baseball in Canada for forever or at least in Montreal and then the you know and then Toronto went from a three million uh, a year uh, you know draw in in uh, their ballpark to basically what they are today and you know it set it up for years for where the, the teams like the Yankees could just basically control their destiny by spending money you know now it's a little bit more balanced and skewed with the with the revenue uh, and the uh, tax and everything else but for years the Yankees just wrote you know people don't realize that they just wrote their ticket to the playoffs every year because they were able to outspend teams and and basically absorb you know guys on the bench that other teams just couldn't afford and the thing that I take away listening to you guys talk because again not the same generation it was actually two things one I've been, the second one I've been preaching about for a while, which drives me nuts, but the first one is when I hear a generation of Mets fans talk about the Seaver trade, and I get the, the horror of the Seaver trade. How Mike, bad I cried. Was. I was 10 years old. My, I, I watched it on the, the thing news. I don't get. Here's the thing I don't get. Fans saying I'm done with the team because the Seaver, the team has changed many times over. Like that group left in 1980 for you know, the Wilpon Doubleday group, and then you have Frank yeah, Cash coming. Then, the Mets don't remember this. Now I I started uh, my first year of actual my first year of actual like fandom was '73. I, I I got to go to the game. My dad was an electrician uh, at Shea. Ran the scoreboard, all that stuff. Went on the field. Met you know Fever. Met. Ed Crane pulled those type of guys. Followed the team through through that era. And, you know, Joan Payson was the Mets owner. She was the one that was uh, instrumental in bringing the team in 62. Former uh, uh, New York Giant fan, loved the National League, got the team put in there. And she ran it like, like you know, like sort of, uh, in a way like Steinbrenner did back in the day. Not as crazy, but, you know, she paid her guys. Everybody got a raise. Nobody got cut. I mean, she was not. It's when she passed away and her daughter took over the team and, and yep. you know, Joe McDonald and M. Donald Grant. And then they started running it like a business.
business, that's when the whole dynamic of the Mets changed back at that point in the mid-'70s when Joan Whitney Payson passed away. I think it was 1975. So that's when the whole thing – like, Seaver never would have been traded if she was um, alive in 77. They would have given well, him his Young, money. Dick Young helped out. Dick Young did a lot to, to help that. Yes, he did, well. yes. And that never would have happened. The whole dynamic, the Midnight Massacre, they got rid of Kingman that night, uh, ironically for Bobby V and Paul Siebert, I believe it was, you know, and then the, and then the Seaver trade, and uh, that, you know, that's basically the dynamic of the Mets, and then they became the Dollar General team for years, you know, where they shopped at the dollar store, I mean, up until this day, I mean, I always said they've always been frugal in their approach, I mean, the first free agents that the Mets ever signed, Elliot Maddox and Tom Hausman, were the first, you know, the Yankees were getting Reggie Jackson and Don Gullett and Raleigh Eastwood and Rich Gossage and go, all these premier guys, and the Mets are getting Elliot Maddox and Tom Hausman as their free agents. That's that's just the mentality hey, that they. Here's the second to. thing. Here's, well, a couple other things. One, two quick other things before because we ha- we're heading into the final minutes here, and I do want to get into the Belmont for Mojo. Uh, no secret, anyone who listens to the show and kind of gets some of my positions. I'm, I'm from a political standpoint. I'm conservative financially, and and when it comes to the defense of the country and things like that. But even with that conservative uh, foundation, I'm not pro-owner guy. And, and people find that very, well, you're not a, I'm not a, I'm not a union, you know, because I think there's a lot of bad with unions too. And certainly the baseball, the, the MLB Players Association is not your typical union, but it's maybe the most powerful one out there because of what they've accomplished. What ticks me off is that, you know, despite me believing in, 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 in conservative financial principles, I am not a proponent of denying people the right to make choices and to work. And what went on with these owners and what you heard what Jeff Katz said was corrupt. It's not about finding ways to rig the system so that you hold all the money. It's finding ways to create a system which inherently is capitalistic. All baseball now is capitalism. And it's all, you know, these same owners that preach capitalism and are probably most of them, if not all of them, conservatives, were doing things that are anti-capitalistic, that are corrupt, that are not about making money. Look, being conservative and being conservative financially, you go out there, you set up the system, um, you know, it's a certain degree of survival of the fittest, but if the rules are all there for everybody else, then it's a matter of making your own way. But in their situation, and I know that people take this offensively because they're certainly not slaves in the sense of, you know, civil war slaves. They were enslaving people trying to make a living. And it's not like they could turn around and say, well, I'm not going to play in this baseball league. I'm going to play in that baseball league. Amazing. And this is not that long ago, Mojo. And, you know, 1994, I'm in, I'm in high school. This stuff was still going on. And including the guy who wound up becoming commissioner of baseball, he was the biggest anti-union, you know, for lack of a better word, POS. And no, everyone knows what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone goes, oh, he's got his library. He's going to be in the Hall of Fame. And Marvin Miller, you know, they all, they'll never let him in. And it really annoys me. And this is coming from someone who is far from, you know, big government, um, you know, anti-establishment you know, type of person. And you, know, you and I talk a lot, and I think you would agree on a lot of those points. No, I, I well, the whole thing that's mind-boggling is that baseball gets an antitrust exemption. You know, and they're the only. They're I the yanked only one. that I mean, sucker tomorrow. I yanked yeah, that sucker I mean, tomorrow. Football See how fast. It. 
You know, that's how football, you know, with the with the whole USFL, I mean, basketball doesn't have it, hockey, but baseball still has it. And that's how they skirt so many of these issues and get away with so much of what they do uh, from a business standpoint. And uh, it, it's it's amazing how how they have. And it's been since like the 40s, I think, the 30s or 40s. And they got, they got it in the courts, and they've always maintained it. And somehow they've had the power to keep it uh, through all these years, despite, you know, there are many, many. You know, bad business practices from an overall standpoint. You know, and, and they've, you know, they have. I mean, when you look at the Kurt Flood case, and you know, Andy Messersmith and Dave McNally, and the reserve clause, and all these other things. I mean, yes, players should have it. And, you know, and then it skyrocketed. And then what happens is, is they, you know, they try to protect themselves against, you know, their, you know themselves you know they they can't control themselves you have the George Steinbrenners of the world who are out there you know and the Yankees who have those big pockets and those big dollars that are spending you know like drunken sailors and then these other small markets are like no hey we want to keep this money you know and that's where they had to come up with the rules where you know we're going to do this revenue sharing but you've got to put some money on on the on the field where like teams like the Pirates over the years were were holding on to the money you know that they were getting from the revenue sharing so it, yeah, it was, there was a big dynamic there, and you know where the haves and have-nots, uh, you know, were totally going. It's almost like the North versus the South, you know, pre-Civil War, where you had two battles of, of, of economics and different philosophies between the different markets. Here's the other thing that amazes me, and I'll leave a final point before I want you to wrap up on the Belmont. Media is so rinse and repeat, and it's not just rinse and repeat from week to week or month to month or in a three, four-year period. Here's the cover. I found this. The cover of the Sporting News when the baseball came back in 1981. And here's what the, 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 the big story of the Sporting News is. Big letters. Baseball's back. And then the subtitle is, but does anybody care anymore? How many times have they wrote? This is from 1981. 1981. How many times has this article been written at different areas? And that's what people say, oh, this is the end of an era. It's never going to be the same. And then last year we heard about soccer taking over, and everybody's excited about Red Bull Arena. Certainly, look, soccer's starting to you know, make its way in its pocket. But before you put people on the death uh, row, before you put sports on the death row, remember this has been talked about many times before from many different perspectives in different eras. I just thought that was interesting, looking at this you know, cover of the Sporting News from 1981. Well, I mean, it, it really is. I mean, you just look at it, and and just people just do, you know, from era to era, at the end of the day, a lot of it is repeated. Like you said, it's rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, and they go out there. Every time there's been a strike, people are like, all right, that's the end of baseball, and, you know, it's it's over and, and done with. Uh, but it, it seems to always survive. You know, there's always something that brings it back uh, to the level of where it is. You know, they always say that, you know, baseball is the pastime and football is the passion of America, and, and, and basically it proves out time after time, because no matter what they seem to do, the public always winds up coming back eventually. Mojo, so as we go into the final few minutes here, we're going to give you the forum here to give your Belmont. Should I, should I run the NFL pick music, bed? No, I'm kind just going to give you, you know, basically, do I, mean, that? Like, I, I mean, yeah, it's, you know, I'm looking at this uh, from a standpoint, uh, Mike. You know, I mean, I don't know what the weather is. I mean, what is the weather up there at this at juncture? I mean, it was no a little bit dri- the- it was drizzly. All right, I'm, I'm and again, I'm in I'm in Comac, Long Island. I'm not going to give you guys my address because I don't want you showing up to my house. But let me see here what the actual time. It's 72 degrees right now. It's supposed to start raining. 40 percent chance of rain at one o'clock. 
cloudy throughout the day, but I think by about five o'clock it'll be in the seventies. Um, but you know, it's not your See, typical that's, that's blistery June factor, day. That's a big factor in this race, Dave. It's going to rain. It's going to be a wet track. I I, I really think um, that American Pharaoh has a real legitimate shot uh, to do this because that is uh, his pedigree. He likes that that track. He likes the the, the wet surface. Um, you know, if it was going to be dry, I was going to say that you know it could be a little bit tougher of a race uh, for him. I mean, you look at this historically. There's been uh, 11 Triple Crown winners uh, over the course of history, 37 years since uh, we last had a Triple Crown uh, winner. There have been 13 horses have attempted uh, to win the Triple Crown since 78 when a firm was the uh, last horse to do it. 20 have taken a shot overall in history. And, you know, you look at all the different Triple Crown uh, winners that uh, they've had over uh, the course of time, and, you know, it, it, the thing that kills these horses, uh, Mike, is is that extra, you know, distance, that mile and a half. Not all these horses are built to do this, uh, and that's really where it comes down to. I mean, I look at this race. I look at, you know, American Pharaoh's a real special horse. Uh, Baffert, uh, the trainer who has done very well in the uh, Belmont, he says that this is probably the best horse that he's had uh, in this race, and, you know, he's had Point Given, who who, who uh, mastered this uh, uh, in the past. I mean, this this could be one of those situations where history uh, could uh, you know, be made today if the track is wet, if it's dry. I, I, I personally, I'm going to go with Frosted, the six horse today. Uh, to, uh, I'm going to take him to win in place. Uh, I think that Frosted is a powerful horse. It's fast. Uh, it was third at the Derby. Uh, you know, it's a, it's been a consistent. He didn't run the Preakness, so I, I, I like Frosted uh, to come out here and run a good race today. I look for the eight horse uh, materiality to basically push American and Farrell, those two horses should set the pace. I don't know if it's going to be a fast pace uh, based on, on, on the track, um, but if you were going to try to make some money, I would go with Frosted to win in place, and then I would put, you know, it, with a box, whether you do you know, an exacta uh, box of some sort with the six Frosted, and then I would throw um, you know, American Pharaoh in there and two horses from the uh, you know, the outside, I would throw the four um, Fermento, uh, which is a Nick Zito horse, and then I would throw uh, made from lucky which is a grinder uh that's kind of made for this type of race uh you know that type of a horse uh it was good at the peter pan this horse if you look at it it's a consistent horse so i would throw those two big horses in there made from lucky fermento as you, because if those horses come in you know and you click with one of the other ones or if it happens to win you'll make some money but i would go frosted win in place and then i would throw a box with the six uh, frosted the five feral and then i would throw the three and a four so I would go three, four, five, six in my in, in a, some sort of a uh, an exotic, depending on how much money you have to wager, and then I would go frosted to win in place uh, in the Belmont. I, I tend to go with the horse that's kind of uh, fresh, and I think frosted's a good horse, and and that's the horse I'm going to go with. But you know, hey, you know, Joe is at the race. Uh, Joe is yep. there, uh, drinking his mint juleps and uh, eating his pineapple, perhaps maybe even a little avocado. Uh, you know, Joe is there, you know, getting ready for his Brooklyn Islanders, uh, you know, and, and, and experiencing the day. So, uh, you know, if it happens, it's going to be one of those historic uh, moments in sports where you say, I was there uh, at the time. I mean, it's been 37 years since we last had a Triple Crown winner. Yep, so and it's I not passed easy up on do. it. 
I had a chance to go, and I passed up on it. So you know, uh, Joe will never let you live it down if no, American Pharaoh wins. Because he my life is going to be changed. You are negative, and you should have been there. He, be he will tell you that you should have been there. But no, overall, Mike, I think that's what I would do. I would go uh, three, four, uh, five, six in a box, and then play uh, Frosted one in place. But I think it'll be a fun race. Uh, Six fifty post time. Uh, if the track's wet, I think it, it, uh, American Feral has a better shot than if the, the track is dry. So that's a big factor uh, as you monitor it throughout the course of the day. All right, we got to wrap up. Mojo, next time you will be co-hosting will be late August. And who knows, maybe you'll pop on before then. I know you and Joe might have to have a little, uh, we have to have a mediation at some point, maybe at some point. But uh, we uh, we will see you at the very worst in the late August when Joe's off doing Joe Bono things at some exotic island, as, as we always like to talk about. <laughs> it was a pleasure, Mike. I, I always enjoy it. And uh, anytime, you know, you know how to reach me and uh, always yep. enjoy popping on with you. All right, I want to thank Mojo for uh, hopping on and uh, subbing in for Joe Bono today. I want to thank Jeff Katz, Mayor Cooperstown. Check out the book, Split Season 1981. And also I want to thank former big league pitcher Jim Cott. Listen to the show live on replay at WeekendWatchdogs.com. Go to our Facebook page, The Weekend Watchdogs, and send us a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And if you want to check out Mojo, at Jim Mojo Morrison. Thanks a lot, Mojo. Thanks a lot, everyone. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy the Belmont. And uh, we will see you next week. Take care.